How do you? Good morning. Um, I've been really encouraged during the worship time with the words that have come. Um, and really, uh, the words about the headphones uh, being a distraction, God being a jealous God, um, kind of sums up what I'm preaching about. So take hold of that. God wants to, to speak to us. Um, the, the, the topic I'm going to look at is... Sin and mission. And uh, I'm going to be sort of mainly planting us in Colossians 3, just the first part of Colossians 3. But also using a bit of uh, some of the story of David, the, the narrative story of David to kind of parallel with that. So that it helps us see some of the things that that passage is showing us. Um, but before we, we get into looking at that scripture, before we begin to unpack that. Um, we need to have a good starting point, a good starting place. And so when I, when I mention sin, often uh, what can come to mind immediately is a, a sort of a humanistic way of looking at sin or a, a worldly way of looking at sin. And I want us to have a viewpoint of sin from God's perspective, not from how the world would look at sin. And so from a, a worldly point of view, when we think of sin, we can think of good and bad, we can think of right and wrong, we can think of what is sin, what isn't sin. We can begin to think sort of along, along the lines of, you know, human morality and philosophy and try and work out what is right, what is wrong, what, what is sin. And we can look at things around us, the world around us, to try and gauge what's right and wrong. That's a kind of human or worldly way of looking at sin, trying to work it out. And that tends to lead us down a path towards legalism. And actually, more than that, we miss the mark completely if we begin to try and look at sin in the terms of what, how the world sees it. Because we're trying to work it out as far as what we think is right and wrong. Like in all things, we want to start with God. We want to view sin through how God views sin, not how we should view sin through the world, but how God looks at sin. That means we need to know what God is like. And God is holy. There's that picture in, in Isaiah 6, 3, that is uh, these creatures around the throne, and what they say about God is holy, holy, holy. And what, what I find interesting about that picture, about that, that scene, is lots of things, but the fact that these creatures are perfect creatures. They're perfect created beings. Yet when in the presence of God, they have to cover their faces, cover their feet, and say, He is holy. That's their expression of God when they're around the throne. And so we see that God is holy, which means that He is separate, perfect, powerful. And if we come to look at sin from that angle, it changes things. Because God is holy. So the question comes then, so what is sinful? Well, what is sinful is the whole world and everyone in it. The first man, Adam, turned his back on God, disobeyed God, and as a result of that, we are all born into sin. We are all born with a sinful nature. 
In Romans 5, 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through uh, one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. We are all in the same boat. I'm going to use the word all a lot to kind of drive it home. We are all in the same boat. We are all born sinful. We have that. It's our nature. Famous verse, Romans 3.23. For who? That was quite quiet. You obviously all know it because most of you said it, but said it really quietly. You can feel free to be a little bit louder. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, everybody, every single person, me, you, everybody in this room, everybody in the world, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means we don't meet his standard. We can't be in his presence. We deserve to be separate from God. We deserve to be punished by God. Because we are, in our nature, sinful, separate. He is holy. And I'm going to share a little, a little story now that kind of I find really helpful in seeing how this can work out. Sort of how, how human viewpoint of sin versus God's viewpoint of sin uh, works itself out. And Whenever I talk talk or or mention things from the Old Testament, I'm very aware that I am not a Hebrew, and and you've probably noticed. So I look at names and I look at names of places, and I don't even pretend that I'm going to know how to pronounce any of them, because I haven't got a Hebrew accent. I don't know Hebrew, and so (laughs) so this is going to be a little little picture into how my mind works. I just make up how they sound. I just read it out, and then however that comes out in my head, that's how I'm going to pronounce that word. And I know probably I should do some more study, look at the Hebrew, listen to somebody who knows Hebrew say it, and then I'd be able to pronounce it. But unfortunately, I haven't done that, so you're just going to have to hear it how I pronounce it. And so we're going to look at a little story about a man who's, who's, whose name is U-Z-Z-A-H. And I like to pronounce that Uzzah. Okay. And so you could, you can pronounce it however you want. I'm going to pronounce it Uzzah. I just, Uzzah. Anyway, um, so we find the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. And to set the scene, what's happening is the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Ark of the Covenant is a place where God in the Old Testament used to dwell amongst his people with his presence, his holiness was in the Ark of the Covenant. It was an incredibly important thing to Israel. It is where they brought sacrifices, where they heard from God. It's where the presence of God was amongst them. It was incredibly important. It was incredibly sacred. It was incredibly holy. And they really took care of it. And what's happening here is that the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back into Jerusalem. And there's a big pie going on, basically. Jerusalem is where it it should be. and, And so the people of Israel are really happy. And so... Again, you're going to have to forgive me because the way I imagine things can be a little bit strange sometimes. So how I imagine this story would look and unfold might not necessarily be the way you see it, but just bear with me. So you see the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Israel. And so they used to carry this thing on incredibly long poles. Okay, And actually, this was kind of being carried by oxen, which are like old-fashioned tractors. And so they, they're walking in truth. And so there's a big party going on. 
And so there is trumpets sounding, people dancing in the streets. Nick Samaniego is rocking it out on the harp. It is a big party. People are happy. People are joyful because the Ark of the Covenant is coming back to its rightful place. In fact, John, you do a good trumpet with your mouth. Can you just give us a trumpet blast? Okay, now you're in the zone. Now you feel like you're right there on the streets as the ark is being brought back in. There's a big party going on. There's dancing. And in my head, again, apologies. So even the oxen are smiling in my head. Even they've got swagger because they're carrying the ark of the covenant coming back into Jerusalem. You know, these guys are important tractors. These guys are important oxen. And they're bringing this thing back in. And it's an important scene. And so what happens is one of the oxen, probably distracted, you know, just breaking his moves out stumbles and this ark the ark the ark looks like it's going to fall over and so Uzzah comes to the rescue Uzzah must have been quite close to the ark he was probably enjoying the pie and he sees the oxen stumble and he goes for it and uh, lots of films lots of tv series there's that moment isn't there where someone like bumps into the mantelpiece and the, the, the vase is about to fall off the mantelpiece. And in slow motion, you, someone dives through the air. And it's that slow motion. Is he going to get it? Is it going to break? Is he going to save the vase from falling down? So in my mind, Uzar is thinking, the Ark of the Covenant is going. He's diving for it. He's going for it. He rescues it. And, and probably in his head, the end result of this is going to be, the Ark of the Covenant saves it. Everybody, save the ark. Check it out. Not only he stops it from falling, he saved God from falling over. This is awesome. This could be running through his head. So he goes for it. He touches it. God kills him. Not that funny, but someone someone obviously found that funny. God kills him. He dies there. In front of everybody, a little bit of a party killer, a little bit sudden. Now, I want us just to feel our reaction. Gauge your reaction to that story. How does that feel? What, what are you thinking? How, how are your emotions responding to that story? Now, if I'm honest, I can look at that story and I can say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. This guy, I'm, I don't know why I'm standing down here so much. This guy, he, he was trying to help. Uzzah was trying his best to help. He wanted to stop the Ark of the Covenant falling over. He wanted to help. It's not fair that God killed him. Do you see what I'm getting at? That is a humanistic, that is a worldly way of looking at that story. But actually, if you look at it from God's point of view, there's only ever one outcome. He's warned the people of Israel. They know. You don't touch the ark, you die. What God sees is an irreverent, arrogant, sinful man touching the holiness of God. And there's only ever going to be one outcome of that. Death. And so, our starting point in looking at sin... The place we need to see sin from is from who 
God is. How he looks at sin. And when we, when we begin to, to look at it from that point of view, when we begin to think of the immeasurable gap between us and holy, awesome God, it becomes incredibly apparent that we cannot bridge that gap. That we, in and of ourselves, cannot make ourselves unsinful. We can't fix it. There's nothing we can do about our nature, our sinful nature, in the light of who God is. The, the place that we need to come to is confessing, believing, understanding that it's only ever going to be from God that a solution can come for our sinfulness. It can only be from God. Because we see who he is and we see ourselves in the light of who he is. And this is where, if you're a Christian in the room today, you can begin to crack a bit of a smile. Because you know what's coming next. You know what I'm about to say. Only God can bring the solution. And wonderfully, magnificently, amazingly, he has made a way. The almighty, all-powerful, holy God, the creator God, has had mercy on us. He's had mercy on us. He's loved us. Think about that. Who God is. He didn't have to. He doesn't have to. But he has had mercy on us. As we flick through the Old Testament, we see that right from the beginning of time, God has set into motion a plan to bring redemption, a plan to solve our sinfulness, to take us from sin, to take us from death to life, to, to change us, to give us a new self. He has started a plan to bring about redemption for all people. And as we walk through the Old Testament, we see that he is unfolding that plan through his people, Israel. And he is pointing them towards the coming Messiah. And then he came. Now, if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. And so this is where I, I, I want to encourage you to join in again. After three, we're going to say who came. Okay? One, two, three. That was better. And actually, I would encourage all of you, just in your own time, just to shout the name of Jesus, just randomly. You know, go to the countryside where no one's around and just shout it. It does good to your soul, just to shout the name of Jesus. Honestly, I've done it, and sometimes I'll do it at home. You can do it into a pillow, you can go full volume and it's not as embarrassing. <laughs> Honestly, just shout the name of Jesus. So I'll give you another chance, okay? After three, who came? One, two, three. Jesus! That was a good shout there, Johnny. Letting it all out. Okay? 
He came, the one who was prophesied to come, the one who all the Old Testament and history was leading towards, the one who the people of Israel were waiting for, were believing for, the Messiah, he has come. Jesus has come. It's amazing. And what we see Jesus do is exactly what we can't do, what we couldn't do, what we'd never be able to do. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He came for purpose and he saw his purpose through. He came and he was falsely accused. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was scorned. And as an innocent man, he was murdered on a cross. Perfect. God with us. Jesus. And he went to the cross. And he died. And on the cross, the almighty, all-powerful, holy God poured out all of his wrath against sin on his son. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. We were hearing last week, weren't we? Just, I just, I could keep on listening to that message of bless I was preaching the Lamb of God who was slain. Powerful stuff. Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf. So now we can know forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Jesus is the only way to know peace with God. He's the only way to know peace with God, to have our sinful nature dealt with, changed. We're unworthy, completely unworthy of of receiving this grace, of receiving what Jesus has done. But he came and he did it and it's available for us today. If we confess our sin, if we confess our unworthiness, if we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus and put our faith in Jesus to forgive us, we will be saved. It's amazing. Remember who God is. How much we deserve to be separate from him. And when we get saved, just awesome things happen to us. We get declared righteous before God. Which means no condemnation anymore. No guilt anymore. We are called children of God. Which means we can know God as our Father in heaven and have relationship with God as our Father in heaven. And we're going to be with him forever. That's what we get in Christ. Free gift. It is completely and utterly undeserved. And there's no, nothing at all we can do to earn this wonderful salvation. Just as much as we can do nothing to undo the work of Christ. It's an insult. So our starting point is God. Our starting point 
is what he has decided to do. And now in the light of the gospel, in the light of what he has done, we as Christians can take action in resisting temptation and sin. And so that's what I'm wanting to look at today. I'm wanting to look at how sin is a reality and how we can resist sin. But one thing that I did feel God spoke to me about, and and actually a few people have shared some words with me today, is that we are all very aware of what the Bible teaches about sin. If we're Christians, we know about it. We've responded to God. Obviously, we've confessed our sin. But very quickly, we can become embarrassed about the topic of sin. We can become a little bit hesitant to confess our sin. We can become a little bit proud, maybe, that others might look at us and think we're sinful because we're a Christian and we're meant to look good and I've got a family and what if they knew really what I was like? And That sort of attitude can come back into our hearts. And I, I feel that God is wanting to smash through that this morning and help us to actually be free to live in the reality of sin but actually facing it and fighting, being in an attitude of war towards sin. That's what we want. We don't want to deny... The fact is that we will all mess up, we will all sin as Christians. Okay? Said it. (laughs) But the most important thing is the attitude of how we deal with that ongoing battle. And so it's a reality. And so we're going to look at some practical stuff in a bit that can be helpful in us uh, dealing with sin um, and some attitudes that can be helpful in dealing with sin. Um, But it is the key, the key is a good understanding of the gospel. And what I mean by that is not just a, a simple Jesus, my Jesus, understanding of the gospel. It's nice, that's part of the gospel. But understanding the grand aspect of the gospel that it is God unfolding his plan throughout all history. It is God bringing about his sovereign plan, not in spite of us, but God bringing about his sovereign plan through us. Understanding that the gospel is powerful, it is eternal, and it is ongoing in its essence, that Jesus is going to come back. He hasn't come back yet, which means the gospel, which means the plan of God, which means the sovereign work of God is still unfolding now. And we need to have a big picture, a big idea of what the gospel is and then see our place in that. Because when we have the right understanding of the gospel, it helps us. It helps us have an attitude that is, it matters what I do. Because when we really grasp the grand, the big picture of the gospel, and we see that God is doing it through us, that's his choice, we respond by going, it matters. It matters what I do. Because I'm part of God unfolding his plans in the earth. I'm part of the eternal, cosmic, big, massive gospel of Jesus Christ. That is unfolding throughout all history. I'm part of that. It's having the right view of the gospel. And so, looking at the subject of sin, 
And starting to fight for holiness in the church is, is incredibly important for us. Um, again, hearing some of the words that were shared this morning uh, about um, just the Holy Spirit not being a kind of, you know, measly portion of dribble, you know. It's, it's, it's just a, there's an outpouring. There's a, there's a lot of power available for us. And hearing Deborah saying, you know, we can hear God. You know, these are the things he wants for us. And I do believe that as a church, he's ongoingly, at the moment, pouring out his spirit on us. He's ongoingly making us more free, dealing with stuff in our hearts and, and moving us on in him. And it's wonderful to be seeing it, to be being part of it. God is doing stuff. And I believe that this morning is another one of those moments where we can respond to God and say, yes, Lord, I'm in. Yes, Lord, deal with that attitude in me. And uh, I'll say this now, and I'll mention it later as well. Um, gentlemen, normally what happens when a response time comes is that women respond because they tend to be more responsive. And I, and, and I know some of you probably don't want to hear that from me and maybe a little bit insulted by it, saying, who are you to say that to me? I'm no one to say that to you. I'm a bloke. I'm the same. <laughs> I should, I, there's hundreds of times when I should have responded and I didn't because of pride. Today, just want to encourage you to throw off pride and hear God and lead out in response. I'm just going to say that now. Sorry. Um, so now we're going to get into the scriptures, which is, sorry, that was a kind of introduction. So we're going to look at uh, the Colossian, uh, Colossians 3, 1 to 17. This portion of scripture, this, this section of scripture, is massively juicy. It is full of goodness. It is awesome. And, if I'm honest, I could probably spend a couple of months preaching systematically through these verses. And like Dan does, when he preaches, he, he systematically goes through scripture. And it is, I was saying, I think I was saying this to Al the other night, it is, it's gourmet meal stuff. So you get fed, it's like, ooh, and another course, ooh, and never tried that, and that's tasty, and that's refreshing and filling. Um, probably this morning what you're getting is more of a Red Bull. And so I, I'm not going to go systematically through this scripture, but actually there are things I believe God wants to draw out of these scriptures in their in the essence of them, a couple of things that I want to draw out from them. So if you're expecting me to go into the exegetical detail and say, you know, the really importance of the two therefores in the passage and blah, blah, blah. Yes, I know that they're there and they're important and they're great. Please read it in your own time and study it because it's great. That's not what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to be paralleling it. <laughs> That's a good word. Um, with some of the narrative story of David to try and help us see some of these points that I want to draw out of this passage. Okay? And so we're going to read it. And then we're going to look at some of the narrative story of David to try and help us bring some of the stuff out of there. So Colossians 3, 1 to 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, 
Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Syrian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God, God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, an amazing section of scripture, as I say, lovely. And do, do go and study it in your own time. It's brilliant. And what I want to do really now is, is pull out, uh, kind, of, kind of separate it into two sort of sections and bring out really sort of two points from those verses that I, I believe will help us in dealing with sin and being on mission. And so we're going to dive now into some of the narrative uh, story of David, and we're going to join him in 2 Samuel 11. Okay? So you, I'm going to paraphrase the story. Um, I'm just going to say it, probably walk around, and you have another little glimpse into how my imagination works. Look at you. Um, but the, you can follow it in there. In the, it might come up behind me. You can look at it in your Bibles. If you put your hand up, you can follow it. It's there. And so at this point, what we see is a story of David messing up big time. Okay? So he's, he's out one evening and on his roof, just chilling. And he goes and, I don't know, looks at the surrounding area. And he sees a woman having a bath on her roof. And takes a fancy, thinks she's fit. And so he's, he's, he's looking at this woman, has, has this temptation come to him. And so he, he finds out who this woman is. And uh, she's called Bathsheba. I don't know what Bathsheba is. I should have looked that up. But Bathsheba having a bath. I just find that funny. Anyway, so he finds out who this woman is. Finds out she's a married woman. And ends up inviting her round to his palace. And uh, she comes around and they end up sleeping together. And in the end, she ends up getting pregnant. Okay, She didn't seem to put up much of an argument or fight as far as going around and seeing David. Um, and so that's what's happened, is that she's now pregnant. And so then we see that David tries to cover this up. And his first attempt at covering it up is to uh, get her husband back from war and to, you know, come home and sleep with your wife. 
But this guy instead is actually a lot more honorable than David. He's like, I'm not going to be sleeping in my house while my mates are at war. You know, it's like, David, come on, learn something from this guy. And he, he doesn't. He doesn't sleep with his wife. So that, that first attempt, it fails. So this guy doesn't, doesn't sleep with his wife. So David then goes to, to plan B and arranges that this guy gets put onto the front lines of battle. And pretty much that's a death sentence. Well, it is a death sentence because he gets killed. Um, so in essence, David murders him. And then David marries the woman. The woman gives birth. And then God sends a, a prophet to David. This guy's called Nathan. And he, and he comes and he, he speaks to David. And he, he shares a little story um, which David is listening to. And, you know, this, this story kind of gets David angry. He's like, you know, this guy, you know, he took the goat from the poor man. And, oh, how could he do that? He deserves death. And Nathan goes, that's you. And bang, he's convicted of sin. David then actually repents of his sin. He says, oh, Lord, I have sinned against you. And God, it says God takes his sin from him. So God forgives him. But there is a consequence to his sin. And the child that is born to Bathsheba ends up dying. And so that is the reality a lot of the time with sin is that God forgives us, absolutely. But with some sin, there is going to be consequence to that. You just need to know that. And so it is an incredibly tragic story. It's an incredibly sad story that this happened, that, that King David fell into sin like this. And not only that, that somebody was murdered and that a child died. It's, it's a very, very tragic story. And the key verse in this story is verse 1. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. And so I'm going to read it out how you should read it out if you've read what's happened before this point. Okay? So, in the spring, because so far the story has been pretty epic, so you're already kind of buzzing with what's been happening. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Okay? Exciting things have been happening. So you're reading this with excitement and passion. David! sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. The reason that that scripture is so key and so bizarre and so perplexing is that if you know the story up to that point, it's incredibly inspiring. I mean, really inspiring. You see this guy, King David, anointed as a young boy, okay, and... David's one of these guys, just totally gifted in every single way possible, okay? He's described as being ruddy with handsome features. Um, where's Dom? Dom Judin. Where are you? Stand up, Dom. Okay? Ruddy with handsome features, right there. If you want to know what that looks like, that is Dom Judin, okay? So he's this young guy, good-looking, handsome features, awesome elbows. He has it all going for him. He's a shepherd boy and he gets anointed to be king at a very young age. And what we see in the story of David is actually as he was a shepherd boy, he used to take on lions and bears who used to come and attack the sheep. He would kill them. So not only was he ruddy with handsome features, but he was rock hard. He was a tough guy. 
He, he knew what, how to handle himself. He, let me say that again. He used to kill bears and lions. He's a hard man. And as he grew up, you know, he, he goes to bring some sandwiches to his brothers. And the, the army of the living God is before this man who is standing up saying, what? You want some? Come and get some. And the armies of the living God are like, oh, they're scared. And, but David rocks up with his sandwiches. And, and he hears the taunts of this giant warrior dude. And he, and he hears them and he goes, what? The, wait, God's with us. So not only is he handsome, ruddy, rock hard, but he also knows and trusts God. And then he goes to take this guy on. And he, he ends up killing this, this giant guy because he believes God. Because he believes God's with him. I love, I love that story. Dan has preached on that story before. It's an awesome story. Story of uh, David and Goliath. Read it. Enjoy it. It's brilliant. Anyway, anyway, he takes on this big guy. And then we see the story of David continue on. And he's anointed as king, but he's, he's humble. So he serves the king who, who is there at that time, Saul. And he, he respects that king. So not only that, but he's a humble guy serving this king. You know, really reverent. And, and you know, he sees the, the anointing that God had put on him. And he doesn't want to affect that, even though God's anointed him as king. And, and he's an awesome musician. So he can play the harp like no one else. To the point where even demons are like, oh. Too good. He's really good musician. So this guy is rock hard, good looking, and an awesome musician. He's got all the arty stuff going on for him as well. So if I met this guy, I'd just be just, I'd be on the floor just like, no, I didn't want to exist anymore. You are like the epitome of perfect man. He's just got it all going on, loves God. He's described as a man after God's own heart. And he writes poetry. Oh, this guy. What a guy. And we see that eventually he comes to be king. And it keeps on getting better. He, he is absolutely valiant. He is absolutely brave. He is absolutely fearless. And he goes into battle and he takes ground for God. He reunites the people of God. He's taking Israel on. The kingdom of God is being established. The mission of God is happening. David is leading his people forward. He's on mission. He's a man of God. He's got it all going for him. Then you come to this point and you can understand why it is so perplexing to read those verses. What do you mean he stayed at home? What happened? The reality is, is that he took his eyes off the mission. For whatever reason, we don't know the reason why he stayed at home. Maybe he was lazy. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he was proud. We don't know. But for that moment, he took his eyes off the mission of God. And so when we look at the Colossians passage, and we look at this first section, we see now some of the importance of grasping the first bit. Okay? Just remember the story of David. Takes his eyes off the mission. This is why these words are so important. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. The starting point of these verses is that we need to be absolutely 
sure in our salvation, in the work of Christ, and have our hearts, have our minds absolutely focused, fixed on things above, on the mission of God. David took his eyes off the mission of God. He stayed at home. And that is where sin, well, temptation came to him. And we see in this Colossians passage that that it starts with that. It starts with just the wonderful truth of the gospel. Again, remember, that's the key, knowing the gospel. And it says, fix your minds on things of God, on God. Be on mission. Commit yourselves to the purposes of God. Commit yourselves in heart, in mind. Know the sureness of your salvation. And then put to death, therefore. Do you see the order of this bit? We will need to be on mission for God. We need to be on mission for God to have our minds set on things above. And then, as we do that, as we are pursuing the things of God, we will ongoingly, more so, have a a passion in our heart to put to death, therefore, things of the earthly nature. Because we are not thinking about things of the earthly nature anymore. We're thinking about things of the kingdom. And things of the earthly nature have less space in our lives. We fight. We put to death, therefore, all of these things that are listed. Attitudes, things of the sinful nature, of the earthly nature. When we take our eyes off the mission, we leave ourselves wide open for temptation to come in. I think we can all think of times where we fail, where we mess up, where we sin. And I believe that actually a lot of that time, a lot of those moments are because you're not on mission. Your eyes are not fixed on things above. It's not about being busy or busying yourself. Sometimes that can help, yeah. But it's not about being busy. It's about being on mission. It's about a heart attitude. It's about where your mind is focused. It's about the attitude that is what, like, like David was up to that point. Warrior, pursuing the things of God, bringing forth the kingdom of God into the earth. That's our call. That's our purpose. As we do that, as we do that, we can put to death things of the earthly nature. We can deal with sin. We can see it more quickly because our eyes are fixed on things above. David took his eyes off the game. David got distracted. The headphones. (laughs) Are we distracted? Is the music on? Are we blinkered? Or are we having our minds fixed on things above? Because our God is a jealous God. And so... You can feel the unthinkableness of, of why David stayed at home there. You just read that verse and it hits you. And you go, I can't believe it. I can't believe he did that. And the second thing I want to draw out from this Colossians passage and paralleling again with the story of David is I remember once a man uh, sharing and, and talking about the story of David and Bathsheba and he mentioned something that kind of stuck with me, uh, really hit me in 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 the heart and, and stuck with me. And, and, and that is, he, he said, at this point in the story, when uh, you know, David makes this decision, he says, 
Where was his Jonathan at that point? And I was like, oh, what, does he, what does he mean by that? And, and this, this guy went on to explain it. And, and Jonathan, to explain who Jonathan is, uh, was David's best mate. And these guys had an awesome relationship. They were incredibly close. Um, you, can, you can read about their, their relationship in, in 1 Samuel 18 onwards. And you, you see that actually they, they even made covenants with each other. They supported each other. They had each other's backs. They were like brothers. Incredibly close relationship. And Jonathan is a good guy to have as a friend. He was also a man of God, brave, valiant. You know, we read stories about him going with his armor bearer and taking on some Israelites on his own, you know, pushing through. He's a man of God. He's a good guy to have a relationship with. But Jonathan died alongside his father in 1 Samuel 31. And so Jonathan, the actual Jonathan, at this point in the story, isn't there. Physically, he's not there. He's died. And I just wonder whether David really ever got over that. Because no one seemed to have anything to say when David said, I'm staying at home. I think if Jonathan was there, Jonathan would have had something to say about that and would have had permission to say that to the king because he's in covenant relationship with this king. They're best mates. They're like brothers. And so there's a permission there. There was a permission to speak into each other's lives. And so in the second part of this Colossians passage, we see that firstly, obviously, that we have our minds fixed on things above and that therefore we can put to death sin. And this second section really has an essence to it of body ministry. And again, makes the emphasis on being God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And it tells you to clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. And then it goes on to talk about us together, bearing with each other, forgiving each other. And I, just on a side note, I, there is no space in the church for unforgiveness and bitterness between Christians. We're brothers, we're sisters. God has forgiven us. We need to forgive like God has forgiven. There is no space for it. It will be a massive headphone on the church if there is bitterness and unforgiveness amongst us. We need to deal with that. If you've got any of that this morning, even a little bit, even if you think you've dealt with it before, but it's rising up in your heart, deal with it this morning because there is no space for it in the church. We see that there is a corporate aspect to this second section. And it says that Again, letting the message of Christ dwell amongst you. Again, it's all Christ-centered. We've been hearing that prayed this morning. Teach and admonish one another. Okay? There is a corporate sense of these verses. And David didn't have anyone at that point speaking into his life. Being his mate. Being his friend. Personally, I, I would say I have maybe three or four Jonathans in my life. Three or four blokes who I would trust anything with. People who I will confess my sin to. Who I'll get that sin out in the open. I'll get it said because I can trust them. Because I love them. Because they love me. And I know that they're not going to judge me. They're going to love me. No matter what I've done, I know I can trust those guys with anything. 
I've given them permission to speak into my life. And I speak into their lives. They probably would testify to that. I probably speak more into their lives than they do into mine, but I'm a little, just a little bit more aggressive. But there's a permission there between friends, between brothers, to speak into each other's lives. We, friends, are a body of Christ. We are not on this mission alone. We are not doing this by ourselves. We are a body. We are together. And together, we're to teach and admonish one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to rebuke one another. We're to be Jonathan to each other. And I put in my notes, I didn't know whether I was going to say it or not, but I'm going to say it, is that it says in verse 14 of that Colossians passage that everything, it all has to be bound together with love. It does. It really, really, really does. Don't try and admonish one another if you're angry with each other or just upset or something. It's just don't do that. It's out of love. Because we love each other, we want to see each other built up that we speak into each other's lives. But sometimes love feels like a pair of knuckles in the back of your head. It, it does. And uh, Johnny probably can testify that maybe he's been on the end of my knuckles sometimes. <laughs> just a bit, he says. Because I've, I've, I speak straight to Johnny because I've, I said, I asked him first. I said, Johnny, yeah, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I said, Johnny, you know, I want to support you, love you. You're my friend. Have I got permission to speak into your life? And he said, yeah, it's good. Let's go for it. And so he has felt my knuckles in the back of his head a few times. Some straight words. And he knows that he can say things to me as well. It's a two way relationship. Because if it's birthed from love, we can really challenge each other. We can speak truthfully to each other and maybe get things wrong. But it's okay because it's done in love, so we can work that out. Friends, there are a lot of people in here who don't have any Jonathans, who don't have people who they trust, who they love, and who they would share anything with. And obviously, if you're married, you've got your spouse and, you know, work that relationship out. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. But also have people in your life who, when it comes to crunch time, when it comes to the spring, and it's the time when kings go to war, and you say, I'm going to stay at home. They say, no, mate, you're not. Let's go to war. You see what I mean? King David, I think, never really felt he could have another Jonathan in his life. It must have been devastating losing Jonathan. But it is so key to have an openness amongst the church of God to be rebuked, to be helped, to be encouraged, to confess, speak out our sin to one another. That's a bit scary. okay? And I'm not going to force anybody to do that ever. But in love, in relationship. To confess, I am struggling with this. I did this. And you know what? Maybe that's been hidden secret and in underground for years. And you've never spoken it out to anybody. But when you speak it out, when you get it out in the open, God can deal with it. And your friends can help you in dealing with it with God. And so, we see these two things really from this Colossians passage. As I say, it's not a, it's not a systematic study of that scripture. But I truly believe 
that God is taking us into a time of the Spirit where God is wanting to lead us on, where he's moving us forward. And we're to set our minds on things above. It's time to be missionally focused. A lot of you in here haven't been on mission for quite a while. And you maybe are sitting there thinking, well, how do I do mission? Is it something I've got to do? Have I got to then sign up to a coffee team? Or have I got to go and join, a, join mini kids? Or have I got to go and do something now to be on mission? Is it a physical, is it a practical thing? Well, partly, yes. But more so, it's a mindset. More so, it's a heart condition. That you are on mission. You're focused on the things of the kingdom of God. And that you are putting to death sin in your life with your friends, with the church, together, doing it. I just, I felt, I, I, God gave me a picture in the, in the prayer meeting uh, Friday. And, uh, and, it, and it really just, it just encouraged me really because I, I do feel it's something that God wants to say. So I'm just going to share that with you and then we'll sing a song and, and we'll see where we go from there. But what, what I felt God was saying was, lift your eyes, O daughters, O sons, lift your eyes to the cross. See your Savior on the cross. Lift your eyes and hear his voice. He says, it is finished. Lift your eyes, O sons, O daughters, lift your eyes to heaven and see your Savior in heaven. Hear his voice. He says, receive the Spirit. That's what I felt God put into my heart on Friday evening, and I feel that that's what he wants to do this morning. I feel that there is absolutely overwhelmingly the power of God here to fill us to bless us so that we can be on mission for God in the earth and that he wants to affirm and to encourage and to remind and to really deeply plan into your heart the truth and steadfastness of the gospel and your position in Christ when he says it is finished he means it is finished the work of the cross is complete. And so if the band would like to come up, we're going to sing a song and then respond.